This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm sitting down with Rob Rastovich. Rob Rastovich is the Chief Technology Officer at ThingLogix and an expert on the Internet of Things, or IoT. He has been actively involved in technology for more than 30 years, from building a top 10 e-commerce site at a time when e-commerce was still in its infancy, to establishing Amazon's AWS IoT. ThingLogix was awarded the 2018 IoT Platforms Leadership Award and has become an advanced tier technology partner for Amazon Web Services. When Rob is not at the forefront of IoT and in Silicon Valley, he can be found maintaining his cattle ranch in Central Oregon. Hi, Rob. Hi, Deb. So, Rob, I don't think we can start out our conversation without first coming up with a definition for IoT or the Internet of Things. Would you mind sharing with our listeners your definition of IoT? You know, I think that IoT has been a pretty broad term these days. You use it from anything from firmware to putting a graph on a page to any kind of connected devices. But for me, what IoT means is anything that can send and receive a message. And so to put it another way, anything that can talk, I always often use the word chirp. If it can chirp a message or receive a message, it is connected, is, is a connected thing. And by that definition, is it's even probably broader. So it can be devices, businesses can chirp, people can chirp. I have a friend of mine who calls it not just the internet of things, but the internet of everything. So that's the way I can, anything that can talk, anything that can send a message or receive a message. And when you say anything that can talk, what do you mean by anything that can talk being a part of the internet of things? Why does talking seem to you to be such a central feature? Well, I use the word talk very generically. So it's not so much, you know, that it's the ability for something to communicate. So I have, as an example, a temperature sensor. The only thing it can say is what its temperature is. It's 76 degrees. (laughs) It's 76 degrees. It's 76 degrees. (laughs) And it'll say the same thing over and over again. But it has the ability to communicate a message or a series of messages. You know, a connected vehicle can communicate its speed and its location and its RPMs and all those things. So anything that is connected has the ability to send a message to an endpoint of some sort. And you're the CTO of ThingLogix, which is an entire company based off the adoption of the Internet of Things. So what exactly is ThingLogix's message and mission, and what kind of companies do you tend to work with? So ThingLogix provides a framework for the development and management of the logic of things, ergo the name ThingLogix. We were born out of a company called uh, Telemetry. So the three founders, myself and my two partners of ThingLogix, we were part of another company called Telemetry. And at Telemetry, our objective was to develop a data ingestion layer. We ended up selling that to Amazon. So what used to be Telemetry is what most people today would know as the Amazon Web Service called IoT. And so that is that service, that Amazon Web Service of IoT, its job is to simply ingest data. Well, being a very pragmatic person and just getting raw data in and having raw data coming in from different devices isn't very interesting to the enterprise or has really no function. So 
ThingLogix, after, after the acquisition, we actually created ThingLogix to create a framework so that when you had a solution or a problem, you said, okay, I have a temperature sensor and I want that temperature sensor to chirp the temperature. And if it gets too cold or too hot, I want to tell the thermostat to go up or go down, or I'm a water sensor and I want to communicate between the water sensor and the pump that's pumping the water. So ThingLogix was a way that we create a framework so that we can quite literally give logic, put code around really dumb devices. This is a podcast on ethics and technology. We were talking about your excitement that technologists and the next generation of technologists who are currently in college or graduating from college are getting ethical education. Why is it particularly important to think about ethics in the Internet of Things? What's ethical about the Internet of Things? I think you as a as a professor, you and I have very similar jobs, except yours is far more critical to our society than mine. <laughs> you, know, you are influencing and you are shaping minds. You are providing information. You are providing context for your students. You gather information and you teach, right? You teach your students uh, a variety of subjects, whether it's literature, whether it's programming, whatever. But you gather information, you put it together, and you present that and give it to your students so that they can learn. What I do is a little less important, but has some of the same aspects in that I do the same thing with devices, right? So we have devices out there that need information. They need historical data points. They need context about where they are in the world and what they do. And they need logic that they can make decisions. Well, if as a professor, you are teaching the students and in teaching the students, we demand that there's a level of ethics uh, for you in terms of programming, quote unquote, <laughs> these students and what they, they learn and how they learn it. Well, the same is true with me. I have to, the, the biases that I could put into a particular device, there needs to be a bit of an ethical a guardrail there to make sure that you're not putting context and information and historical information that would bias a decision that a device makes. In your world, your devices or your the things that you are teaching, they have free will. They can actually go and they can actually say, hmm, not sure exactly that I believe what the professor said. I think I'm going to go try this or I'm going to try that. Well, whatever I put into a device or into a system, or whatever our programmers put into there, it actually becomes, it stays there and it becomes kind of part of the permanent record. So I think we do as technicians have some ethical responsibilities to make sure that we're given the full picture, especially with the AI algorithms that we have today. Can you give us a specific case of an ethical problem that you've seen come out in the context of the Internet of Things? Well, probably the most recent is the types of data. Well, let's see, there's two things. Number one, we did an artificial intelligence that would predict the outcome of a sporting event. And in doing so, we decided the attributes that would go into the algorithms to determine you know, what it would take into consideration. So if I choose to put racial attributes, gender attributes, age attributes into a particular algorithm, the, the machine's going to take that and consider that, and it will learn based on those attributes, including those types of attributes that may be more subjective. So now in a football game, age is a legitimate factor. And I guess in some sense, right, if you have an older player versus a younger player, that might be a legitimate factor. But race shouldn't be in there. And if it's a golf game, it probably, you know, age has a different connotation in there. 
So I do think in those particular cases, what we decide, what attributes we decide to give the the learning mechanism is important. In today's context, with the new recent pandemic, so one of the things that ThingLogix has been participating in is health screening systems for venues and for schools. If as we go back to school, you know, you need to take a self-assessment test. And then as you come up to enter into the school or the venue, there's a kiosk there that will take your temperature and then you go about your way. Well, if you could also outfit that thing with other bio devices, you could do recognitions, you can get behavioral data off of that. So the question is, do we, should we be gathering that information? Should we be holding it? We certainly don't want people with a fever to be admitted into our school, but yet at the same time, should we be holding and monitoring people's health information? Can you give me an example of a new technology that's driving the creation of a perhaps new ethical framework in the context of the internet of things? Well, the health data is probably the the most, the ability for us to gather health information outside of the doctor's office. So with biometrics, you know, we can gather your temperature. We can also we can take skin samples. We can do facial, rec- you know, the, our recognitions with the cameras about behaviors and modification. Proof of vaccinations is starting to become a criteria for entrance of certain things. So should we be using personal health information in a technological thing? Should you be having to be required to give personal health information in order to gain access to something. There certainly are, you know, safety benefits for that along, you know, for the people in the room, but is that something that we should just readily give up? I'm not so sure. And we, I think a lot of our clients struggle with that as well. Yeah. I mean, that word should is such an important question, especially for ethics, because should is a question of what ought we to do, especially when we have competing values. On the one hand, a value is we want to make sure that people are safe. We want to make sure that people are healthy. We want to make sure that we have certain protocols around that now that we have the technologies available. Of course, the other competing value with that is the value of privacy, the value of the ways in which these kinds of technologies and decisions are oftentimes overlaid with discriminatory practices of race and access and financial means and all sorts of other kind of historically connected ethical concerns. Should we be doing these things? I mean, your answer here is is fairly important as somebody who is going to, in many ways, as the CTO of this company, be the arbiter of whether or not we use these technologies and how we use them. Should we be doing this? Unfortunately, it comes from a, you know, a higher place than us. So we are actually, for compliance purposes, Purposes, you're seeing legislation and policy dictating some of this stuff uh, at the local levels, right? So you're seeing uh, local school districts requiring certain things. So as a technician, do I meet the requirements that are being demanded of our clients? So our clients want to open their school and their school district has said, okay, you want to open your school. I want the temperature of every child. I want them to know where they are. I want to know what classroom they've been in and who's all been in that classroom. We have the ability to do those kinds of things. For me, to answer your question, the should, I noticed on on your website, you had a lot of Star Trek analogies and being a technician and a Trekkie myself. I love the um, episode about Commander Data where they were trying to determine he was on trial to be whether or not he was actually alive or not. I think there's going to be And I think there should be as much as we have personal health information and personal information that is our private information, I think you're going to see, and I think we should have device 
personal information, device information that is proprietary to that device. And you don't get that device. You don't get that information unless you are in need of it. So our doctor needs our personal health information in order to make us better. We need to impart that information to him so that he can analyze it and make us better. Should our temperature information and should a sensor's temperature information be available to everybody? I don't think so. It should have as much ability to remain in and of itself as, as you know, even now I don't want to equate the human condition, the privacy and the device, because I still don't think we're there. I don't think we're at the point where I, you know, devices are smart enough that we could say they're like commander data and that they are alive or not. They certainly are not at this point. To set it up for listeners, the commander data episode comes in an episode of Star Trek titled Measure of a Man. The term Measure of a Man, which is the title of the episode, takes its name from a speech written by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the premise of that episode revolves around essentially question about whether or not this character is the property of other human beings and can therefore be dismantled or whether or not he is his own entity and the consequences of that. Of course, those questions revolve around kind of two diametrically opposed theses. One is that there's certain laws and certain structures that enable certain decisions to be made that would classify him as property. And on the other hand, there seems to be a deep pull toward a kind of ethical principle that can't necessarily be articulated by the law. Now, I ask this question because this is a question that I think many of my students who are in the technical majors and many of the next generation of technologists who are coming out of tech backgrounds are going to need to ask themselves. As technologists, are they beholden to what the legislation allows for them to do? In other words, can they do something or ought they to do something because there are laws that say that they can or because they can do what they want to do within the confine of the law? Or are there other ethical principles that might not be specifically explicated in the law that they should follow because they are ethical principles about the nature of our human values? What do you think as a technologist? Well, you run up against that, not just only from the government, but I tell you as a programmer, if you recall the Enron scandal years ago, Enron was this huge corporation, right? Was essentially cooking the books, right? They were following general accounting principles and and actually pushing those general accounting principles to the limit and kind of over the line, classifying different um, assets as you know as liabilities and liabilities as assets. I don't I don't remember all exactly what they did. But essentially, at the end of the day, they made their balance sheet look artificially good. And then at one point, everything just kind of blew up. Well, somewhere behind there, somewhere in that organization, there's a bunch of programmers that are writing an accounting software. And one of the things, you know, we talk about not just legislation compelling their legislation and policy decisions that come down, but there's general accounting principles that when you're writing an application that you, if you're writing a financial application, you need to know what those general accounting principles are. And if you, because your customer or your boss or your thing says, you know, every time you see this, I want you to take that and put it over in liabilities instead of assets. You have to face those same kind of questions. And as a, as an ethical person, I do think, and in my career, I've had, when we were first starting out at uh, telemetry, we were a starving startup, uh, no revenue. We had an idea that we could ingest millions and millions of pieces of data, and we thought we could prove it out. 
we were three years into it and, you know, we're living on hopes and dreams almost quite literally. Money was running out. Um, the angel investors were getting upset. And we had a couple, how should we say, couple opportunities that wanted to use our technology for things that we were not comfortable using it for and offered us big money for it. And, you know, looking at those large paychecks when your family's, you know, you know, you still got to make the mortgage and you got to do that. There is a decision that you have to come to. Now, the group of us, um, when we went into this, we also realized that we are in in some senses, starting to pave the way for all those nightmare things that everybody talked about, Big Brother and, you know, the hive mind and the Borg mind and all these things together. So we consciously made the decision before we even started that this is what we want to do. I'd have to give props to somebody like Boston Dynamics too. Um, I don't know if you've seen them, but they've got, and we were partners with them in programming their robot called Spot. But part of their their policy is you have a robotic dog and you can program it, you can do it, but no weaponization. And there's certain things that you cannot do. And they go out of their way to make sure that we don't do it. And you monitor and what that, and those are based on ethical decisions that we made at the start. So I do think that for an ethical technologist, it's a decision you need to make before you go into the field. I don't think ethics kind of happens along the way. I don't think you get to go along there and go, you know, I, you know, I think you need to go into it and go, this is who I am. This is what I believe. And I will not cross that line because if you don't have that decision up front, then as you're going, it just looks like another job. It just looks like, you know, oh, my boss is asking me for this. My client is asking me for that. Well, yeah. And then pretty soon you realize, wait a minute, I'm building something here that I don't necessarily believe in or that I think it is. So to me, the idea of ethics and technologies, it's a little bit about finding out who you are before you start the process, not finding out along the way. Because if you wait till you're along the way, there's lots of potholes you can you can fall into. I'm so glad that you said that. This is something that I stress over and over again. I think it has to happen on the micro scale of individuals, and it also has to happen on the macro scale of companies themselves as they're launching. There's like two models, I think, of ethics and technology. One is like the prosthesis model, the thing that you add on afterward, and we can think about, for example, Facebook's oversight board as an example of that. And then the other is you build it into the DNA of the product, build it into the DNA of the company culture, build it into your own DNA as a technology. And I'm really glad to hear that that's something that you're kind of driving with in your work. Uh, let's talk about one of your clients, which is Solar Now. I really want to highlight Solar Now because it does seem to belong to the kind of trajectory that you've outlined in taking on kind of ethical projects. What is Solar Now? So Solar Now is an African company that produces a low-cost solar-powered unit that comes with a refrigerator and a TV, or it might be a radio, and a power outlet. So it's a very small unit. I'm not exactly sure what it retails for, but their their business model is that it's very affordable to the common family in, in Africa. So the idea was, and what ThingLogix does in that process is we monitor the health of the devices and and monitor for repair. So if it's, make sure it's up and running and if it has issues so that it can be replaced or do preventative maintenance on it, those kinds of things. But it's a really cool concept because it provides a, a, a power, a, kind of a little tiny little power station 
for families to to plug a refrigerator in so that you get the ability to do food preservation. And as I understand it, the cell phone cell phones in Africa are very ubiquitous. Um, um, and you use your cell phone for banking applications. You use your cell phone for power applications. You know, the power grid there is pay as you go. You don't get a bill like we do here. You have to kind of put it in as kind of it's like a little vending machine where you get more power, but it's all done through the phone. So having the ability to power your, your phone and you know keep informed about what's going on in the world, it also has an outlet for, so the two outlets for a phone and also a computer or anything else you really want to plug into it. Do you view this as an ethical project? And if so, what are the ethical dimensions of the project? And then the second part of that question is, what are some of the ethical dilemmas that come up in this project for you? Well, I do, I do think it's ethical, right? And actually, it's, I think it's not only ethical, but I think it's a really good practical idea. <laughs> it does provide a quality of life enhancement for the ability to preserve food and to stay connected to the world. Now, I'm not sure that there's really anything good on TV to watch, so I don't know if it's a great idea that we have. Everybody now has a TV, but I do think it does improve the quality of life and does meet a need. One of the things I think that, you know, that could be is that, you know, we are, we are receiving data from households. We are monitoring their usage. We do keep track of the location of these things. So, you know, if one were to, you know, gain legs and leaves, we can, we can track it down and whatnot. For us, it's been a matter of, you know, making sure that these things stay up and running. Now, is what you're providing in terms of a refrigerator and a, and a, a television to families that didn't have them before? I, I guess there could be a ethical question we could ask about the idea of connecting people to a world they have haven't been connected to. Sometimes I think that would definitely be a benefit, but uh, I could also see that that might be a detriment in, in some ways. But from our perspective, I think that it, it, it has been a very successful project. The company's done very well, and I think the customers that it serve have really appreciated it. One of the theses that I kind of rely on in the context of ethics and technology is the equation between ethics and equity and inclusion. The reason I say that is because I think that some of the most severe unintended consequences of technology or willfully ignored consequences of technology have come about because tech products are built through the vision of those who build it, who are oftentimes asymmetrically aligned with the people who use that technology. When people build things, I think they we tend to to build things in our own vision, imagining them for our own world with our own needs. And there's nothing morally deficient about that. I think that that's a natural thing for us to do. But then I think that um, we need to be then accountable for any potential blind spots or biases that we build in because we're building in our own image. Are there blind spots in this particular project that you've had to account for or grapple with? And then maybe we can broaden that question out. Are there blind spots in the industry of the internet of things that you see? And if so, what are the kinds of unintended consequences that you have seen or that there could be? I really like that idea of unintended consequences. I, I think that that's something we should all think about. But I also think that, you know, unintended consequences and as you say, willfully ignored are kind of hallmarks of humanity in general. I don't think technology has the corner, have, has cornered the market on that. And I'm not convinced that these are necessarily 100% the responsibility of the person who builds it. So no more do I think that it's like the auto designer or the auto worker's fault that you drove drunk and killed somebody using their their technology. I'm not sure Detroit considers themselves that they're building manufacturing weapons, but 
I have six children and I will tell you that every, and I taught them all how to drive. And the very first thing I do when we tell them, I hand them the keys. And the first time they get in and I tell them, I am handing you the keys and the power to go kill. If you aren't paying attention, if you don't, you know, keep your eyes on the road, if you're more concerned about your friends, if you're worried about this and you're not paying attention to what you do, you are going to, you have the power here now to take another human's life quite unintentionally. Um, and so I love the idea of the unintended consequences, but I also think that that is going to happen with the user base. And I get the question, I get this question a lot, like, you know, uh, around, do you feel like, and because of the internet of things is usually associated with George Orwell in 1984 and, you know, are you creating big brother? Are you gathering up data and using it to, you know, harm me? Is that an unintended consequence? Right now, I don't think it it is. Could it be? It depends on how you're going to use the tools that we give you. How are we going to use the the technologies that we've given? Now, everybody uses it for for ill and everybody uses it for good. So yes, I think there are unintended consequences, but I'm also reminded of when desktop publishing came out. When desktop publishing first came out, and I was still doing it, and the Mac first came out, and, and Photoshop was there, and every graphic designer in the world had Photoshop, and they, they could make a radio blend, right? You could take a circle, you could make a circle, and you could put a drop a color on one side and do a color to the next side, and you would have a radio blend. So every brochure and every catalog had a radio blend on it. And a designer friend of mine said, just because you can make a radio blend doesn't mean you should make a radio blend. And I think that's the case with a lot of technology. Just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. So in this particular project, the unintended consequences, we haven't gathered enough data yet to know, is this helping with the SolarNow um, application? The sales indicate that it's a very popular and a very uh, useful uh, product. But what the unintended consequences are of having that connectivity and having that kind of stuff, I think we could all project what those might be, just look, taking a look from how our society has evolved and how the more connected we became as a society, the problems that we have encountered. Will that be the same for any society that starts to be connected like that? Probably because we're all, we all are human and have the same types of misgivings um, along the way. So, But as of right now, I, I, I wouldn't say for that particular project, there's been any unintended consequences. I will say there has been a lot of things that we have developed that did have, you know, I think beneficial unintended consequences. One that comes to mind is we developed a, a, a simple, soap dispenser. It was a connected soap dispenser, which you wouldn't think would be very important, right? The whole idea of the soap dispenser was that we could count the number of times the soap came out in the restroom and then, you know, know when to go fill up the soap, the soap machine because it's out of soap. That seems the obvious use case. But what it came to be, what it actually ended up being was more of a um, compliance um, type of application. So we ended up putting soap dispensers in delis in Europe through a, in a, a deli across uh, grocery stores in Europe and started counting the number of times that people wash their hands in the deli to see if they are washing their hands enough in relation to what we believe they should pour for uh, sanitary reasons. So was the consequence of that a good consequence or did we now invade people's privacy of making sure we know that they're washing their hands? 
not sure, but I can tell you it was certainly unintended uh, <laughs> at the at the beginning of it. And there's a lot of those types of things that we end up with. I mean, the two examples that you gave, the one about hand washing and the second one, cars, I think are exemplary in, in terms of getting at this question of the relationship between ethics and equity and inclusion. Because the, there's a very famous case with automatic soap dispensers around the fact that they are largely operated by light detection, which does not typically or less frequently recognizes melanated skin. Um, meaning that the experiment of whether or not people are applying has to do a lot with who has designed these soap dispensers and whether or not they have the knowledge, which is oftentimes embodied knowledge, people who have had this experience tend to know of the experience more frequently than people who do not have this experience of the way that soap dispensers might be um, rerouting your data uh, to mean very different sociological things and different things in terms of compliance than you had hoped uh, that they would mean and kind of recreating new patterns. You know, the second example you gave is uh, is driving cars. Now, certainly car manufacturing companies are not responsible for people driving drunk, um, but there is a, uh, a um, rather, I think, important um, statistical difference between the consequences of getting in an accident if you're driving with a male body, which is slightly larger in proportion, and a female body, which is on average slightly smaller. Um, all of the seat belts and all of the kind of engineering of the seat design has been engineered for a typical male body. Typically, the people engineering those kinds of apparatuses within the car have historically been male, which means that a female body is more likely to actually experience major injury or women who are in an accident in a car are more likely to die. So that does seem to present at least equity issues in the two examples that you've given that have nothing to do with whether or not those unintended consequences ought to have been foreseen by, by the companies themselves, right? Those have to do with, with building inclusively. So I guess the question that I would put back to you is, you know, what do you think that the Internet of Things might then be responsible for in terms of inclusive design, not because they can't foresee all the ways that people will use things, but because we can foresee the ways in which different cultures and different bodies might experience things differently. You know, one of the things that we're seeing technology is, is even, even computer science, as, as you'll, I'm sure at your school you'll see, is, you know, dominated by men, you know, in computer science and, and programming. I don't know what the racial makeup is. It, it seems in my experience that it goes kind of, a, you know, especially since we, you know, uh, we outsource so much technology to India, Eastern Europe now, uh, even Russia. But still, from the gender perspective, it is dominated by men. And I think, it, I think they're seeing more and more women um, come into that. But to your point, the Internet of Things, and I think any industry in that, the more diverse its its designers and its its workforce is, the more you're going to have somebody stand up and go, "Wait a minute, that doesn't that doesn't work." And I I can only imagine when you're talking about the seatbelts and the cars that there, there's a bunch of engineers sitting around going, "Okay, we got to build the seats. All right, Bob, does it fit you? Yep, fits me. Phil, fits you? Yeah, George, yep, fits me. Great." Well, there was no barber around to get in the car to look. And if there had been, she would have walked up and said, no, 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 this ain't going to work. It's a, I, I think that is, you're exactly right. We, we tend to do that and we don't, we don't think of those things that we don't think of the things we don't know what we don't know. And I think as the workforce itself gets more diverse, some of those technology decisions that are getting made, somebody will stand up and go, mm, wait a minute, what about? 
I wanted to get back to the should or ought we versus can we do something comment. There's a professor of UI and UX design here at Cal Poly. Her name is Professor Erin Sheets, who likes to reference the phrase putting lipstick on a pig and apply it to technologies that sometimes have shiny exteriors, but are oftentimes applied in a context that doesn't necessarily make sense. In her class, she uses the example of a smart laundry machine that has a touchscreen based on similar principles of Internet of Things design. And she explains that the current feel of a laundry machine works perfectly fine. And from a user's perspective, it's actually much more intuitive with buttons and knobs. So why should we add more smart technology to, for example, in this scenario, the washing machine, if it adds no value for usability or functionality, or in some cases even harms the usability of the system? Do you see this often working in the IoT industry? And how do we avoid adding unnecessary technology? Again, just because you can do a radio, radio blend doesn't mean you should do a radio blend, right? And I think what we do is we confuse products that are more complicated, uh, and certainly within the community, the, the consumer perspective, as being you know new and improved. So more complicated means new and improved. Well, and if we have a if I have a washing machine and I and I like the new features and I like the same old bosom, but I'm not I don't doesn't make me feel like an early adapter and doesn't motivate me to throw out to throw away my old one and get a new one. But sometimes I, I completely agree. I think what happens is we take the best functionality and just make it overcomplicated with too much. I think the real value in a connected washing machine is probably not a new UI and UX or a new digital thing. You know, I would keep the same old buttons. I'd keep the same old knobs. But maybe instead of having to pick up the detergent for the washing machine, the washing machine orders it for you and it just shows up at your door. Or what if one day you get a note from the repair shop saying that they'll be out next week with all the parts necessary to fix your washing machine that's scheduled to break down four weeks from now, right? Those are things that could be of value, but what we have to do and inevitably, and I'm not going to blame the technicians on this one, I'm going to blame the marketers on this one, is that we have to, okay, well, that's not enough. We can't, no one's going to just buy a washing machine because it orders soap. And no one's going to just buy a washing machine because the repairs. It needs a new graph and it has to have, you know, uh, I remember when, when I first started in IoT, somebody said, uh, well, what, okay, IoT, and we called it M2M back then. She goes, well, what are you going to do? We're going to connect your washing machine or we're going to connect your refrigerator. And inevitably, the question is why? And it's a fair question. Well, back then it's, well, because we can. <laughs> it seems like a good idea. But you're right. I don't think we should do that. But if we, in the washing machine examples, there are so many other new business models that we could participate in. So, I mean, uh, what if you didn't have to pay for your washing machine? What if you did washing machine as a subscription? You know, it comes with all the detergent. The maintenance for you is, you know, is taken care of. There's no upfront cost. You just pay monthly for, for what it is you do. However many loads you wash and it's sent back. And you, if you wash a lot that week, then great. Maybe you pay, but you don't wash any of that next week. You don't have to pay. And you get a new washing machine every every two years or something. So I agree. I do think that there is, in technologists, we are so guilty of this. Let's, because we can do a thing, maybe we should. And and then the marketers come in and go, well, all right, we need more stuff. We got to make it, you know, we got to make the digital display flash. And you got to be able to watch TV while you're washing your clothes. 
nah, you probably don't. There is so much more value you can get from the a connected washing machine than a, you know, uh, and I like your idea of, in, of, of lip, putting lipstick on a pig is exactly what it is. We're just prettying up for the sake of prettying it up. I want to proceed down this line a little bit more since I've hit a hot button. For, for listeners who don't know, there's also a Twitter thread called, and we're going to probably get an explicit rating for this, the internet of shit. So as the title of the thread suggests, the thread con- collects internet of thing is inventions that function, oh, well, let's just say they, they function not as they're supposed to function. I remember memorably or an IoT thread about a car rental company that used wireless technology for car renters to unlock and start the engine of a car with their phones, which would thus eliminate the problem of keys. A debacle arose when a group of women rented a car from this company and traveled to a remote location in the desert, and upon parking their car, discovered that they could not get wireless on their phones, and thus they could not start the car. They were also stuck in the middle of the desert without any ability to contact anybody. (laughs) You laugh, and we can make light of it, and certainly the Twitter thread did, because they lived and they emerged out of this debacle okay. But I think that the anecdote brings up a sobering point about how seemingly enlightened innovations that build elaborate technologies into the functionality can go terribly awry. The story could have ended up really badly. It could have ended up so much worse than what did happen, which is the women had to sleep in their cars until they could flag down a passing car and get the car towed. It got me thinking about how technological innovations kind of sell us this idea of progress without sometimes thinking through those unintended consequences, including how these technologies fit into the logistics of our actual world and how the Internet of Things expands the possibilities of things going wrong in many ways, as the proliferation of the internet shit tweets suggests. Um, Are these technologies really making our lives better? I think corporate America is struggling to figure out how to monetize IoT. I think that what they do is they come out with gadgety types of use cases that are least expensive and they get out to the market quick. Just to get something to the market is for the early adapters because they don't want to appear like they're behind the curve. They want to, you know, if my competitor is out there with something, if he can turn on their car with a with their cell phone, then I got to have something. And maybe I at least got to unlock the car with the cell phone. But I don't think the first generation of anything really makes our lives better. You know, it seems like in, you just take the, the smartphone. I guess we could also have the debate whether or not the smartphone made our life better or not. But let's, for the sake of argument, let's assume for a minute that it it has made our lives better in its current form. It's not, you know, this, you know, if you remember the old bricks that were in, in cars and you were tethered to your car, was that of value to anybody other than doctors, you know, that were, I mean, I remember the doctor had, it was only doctors that could have cell phones or, or car phones, I guess we called them back then. But they did pave the way. Any technology that you see, and even, I mean, if you remember, and I remember the first time I saw a QuickTime movie played on a Macintosh, it was, and they were saying, hey, there's video on, on the Mac, a video on the Mac. Oh my gosh. And it's a little tiny postage stamp, you know, window post pulled up and yeah, there was some video that got recorded. It was all pixelated. Did that make our life better? Not really, but it did kind of pave the way, you know, for as the for the technologies that that came after that. So I don't think that these first generations, you know, and talk about your unintended consequences. Another story very similar to that 
there was a property management company who put up a uh, website and they put smart locks on all their rental properties so that, you know, you could go to the website and you could ask to see, you know, I want to take a tour of a house and you would go in there and you'd take a tour of the house and you'd be texted a code and you'd go in and you'd pump the code in and you go take your tour and, and no one would have to do it. So it was kind of a hands-off, you know, be able to rent the property. Well, people figured out how to way to get the code and they just started living in the house. They could go from house to house and stay there all night. And there was a series of people that, that just lived in each house, each rental property, because they knew which ones were vacant because then they could get the code for it the night and walk and do that. They did the same thing happened with, you know, um, hotel rooms with, there was a, uh, a famous story, I forget the details, but it was a connected hotel room that had sensors that were able to, you know, turn the lights on and off. Well, somebody got in and was able to turn the lights off and turn the lights on on every room in the in the hotel, <laughs> moving them up and down. So I do think that there is this stage that we got to go through, this adolescent stage of technology until it gets matured to a point. And unfortunately, I think some of those gadgety type things are, are the result of that. I wanted to go back to the washing machine uh, example that you gave that would smartly order soap for you once you run out of it. Now, as a hater of all things laundry, I would be grateful for anything that helps expedite the project or somehow uh, makes it less labor intensive for me. But I do wonder about some of the privacy dimensions of this. Um, our reliance on tech is becoming more and more foundational to our lives. You know, now I have some some uh, device ordering the soap for me. Um, then. I have another device telling me what I, what else I should order, and suddenly, you know, maybe I start off ordering a protective mace when I go out hiking in the evening, and suddenly it starts, you know, continuing to suggest things, and I end up with a gun. A little bit of a severe example, but I do wonder about the kind of manipulation and also the questions about privacy. As an ethical technologist, it really, for me at least, raises questions about how data privacy can withstand this kind of interconnectedness. Should we be concerned about privacy or should we be worried about manipulation or both? Which one's more severe for you? And Or if they're both severe for you, talk us through what your concerns are. Well, yeah, I think the short answer is, yeah, we, sh we should always be worried about privacy in this very connected world. It should be top of mind for any development effort. I think it should be top of mind for any person just walking around. You know, there we are in a very connected world. So I think you, there's a personal uh, responsibility that you have to, we have to go through for privacy. But from a technologist point of view, yes, we are receiving personal data. And yes, it always we always should be conscious of that. But the reality of interconnected systems is really what I think worries people more that I don't worry about as much. So to go back to the Star Trek analogy, the Borg, you know, the arch enemy of the of the of Starfleet was the Borg. And the Borg is basically a hive mind and interconnected so that when one person knows something, everybody, and they act as kind of one being. That's the ultimate interconnected system where everything knows about everything and there's no autonomy, there's no privacy, there's no individuality. You are just simply a part of, of one big machine. The current reality today is date in, in corporate America is data is king without question. Data is is the gold that a court a, a company can own about about their customers. And as a result, enterprises 
are not necessarily willing to give up that data. Now, it's not going to be 100% true for all enterprises because you're going to have your, your rogue enterprises that are out there trying to sell your data. And But the vast majority of, you know, you talk about ethical technology and there's ethical corporations, there's ethical people, there should be ethical governments, there should be, you know, ethic, ethics goes at, at every level. And I think for those corporations, um, their data is, is the gold that helps them to service their customers, helps them to innovate on new products, and they're not going to share it with anybody. And that's one of the big, you know, one of the big things that we get a lot of times is from our clients who are asking us to connect this stuff. All right, you're going to connect it. I don't want it to go anywhere else. I want it, you know, I want it ring fenced into mine and you got to make sure that no one else gets this because this is my business. So there's some degree that this idea of greed is going to keep us uh, ring fenced a little bit. Now, does that mean we're going to have you know, people trying to get in there. Absolutely. And I think your platforms are also participating in that where, you know, you have your AWS, you have your Microsoft, you have your Amazons, I mean, your Googles and the platforms don't want to share data across each other. Can they? And is it possible? Yeah, but you got to really kind of go around the world, get across the street doing that. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I have, you know, 90% of our time as systems architects is spent trying to figure out how we're going to get data from one place to the other and how we're going to dedupe it and how we're going to get it. So there's a real logistical problem and a political problem and a technological problem that we have to overcome before we get to the point where we're completely interconnected. Now, unfortunately, you've got the most prominent <laughs> face out there is you know Facebook and Google. So you just just go on and, and Google something and see what ads show up in your Facebook and then try and convince people that these platforms aren't interconnected and that they're not actually watching. You know, it looks like it's magic, you know, and it looks like it, but it's not magic. You actually allow this. You have permitted that. And there is ways, I think, to keep it safe. I do believe that we can turn it off. And I do believe the algorithms aren't taking over, that they're not smarter than we are right now. But if you don't know something is there and you're not aware of how it's you know, affecting your life, just as if you don't know there's a security camera around and you start doing something you shouldn't be doing, then the camera's going to catch you. But those, those, those fences and those rails are there and they can. I think we have the ability to keep our data private. And I think we have the ability to, to maintain that so that we don't end up with the Borg mine and that you don't end up with everything. But um, it's not it's not by default. It is, you know, it, it takes effort to make sure. I mean, I worry about this as an equity issue too. It seems like the majority of these kinds of algorithms and the kinds of data collection apparatuses, devices, and techniques are largely engineered by incredibly educated, incredibly knowledgeable, and because of the demographics of the tech industry, incredibly uh, white communities. And typically when we think about new technologies, we think about to new technology use as new technology use um, by the rich and by the privileged. Actually, what we are seeing with data collection technologies and with surveillance technologies in particular, they're created by uh, this demographic, largely in places like Silicon Valley. And the first users are usually the poor, people who are in communities that tend to get very surveilled, black and brown communities in the United States. Do you see data collection and data privacy as an equity issue? 
I have not seen that personally. Okay? So uh, where I, you know, where we are playing because we are in the gadgety, or not gadgety, we're, we're trying to get into the enterprise and trying to rework how enterprises, you know, do their business, you know, t- taking the washing machine for an example, like it's a different business model to sell washing machines versus sell subscriptions to washing machines, right? So what I'm seeing is, that's, I don't, I don't see the bias in terms of equity across the social economic, because most of the technology, you know, it starts with the very rich and it trickles down. I think solar now is another good example. It's not that solar power isn't new, right? Solar power has been around for a long time and it started, you know, you start with a very expensive solar power and eventually it starts to become more and more affordable. And, and now you can have a, a unit that sits in, in Africa and makes it affordable for them. So from my, I don't have a lot of experience in saying that I see our technology doing data collection around poor areas, social economical areas. The, I guess the closest we could get to is we, we do time in attendance tracking instead of time clocks in a large construction site instead of a time clock you walk through a tunnel and it recognizes you and clocks you in clocks you out but i don't think that i mean to me that still has a benefit to the worker i don't think that it in any way tries to collect data uh, against the worker or against, you know, the, the people that would then have any idea of using it against them. I haven't seen that to, to say that, you know, to your point that does it exist? Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the other great stories I hear is, is the sensors of in cities there was, and I, I believe it was Boston. I don't remember. They put up sound sensors around the city that would detect gunshots. You know, you would collect some enormous amount of gunshot data. Like there was something like, I mean, hundreds of gunshots a day. And of those hundreds, one or two were actually uh, could be correlated to a 911 call. So are you collecting data? And is that data being collected in poor areas? Yeah, for sure. Is that going to use against them? Um, I'm not seeing that. I think the most famous example I can think about is face recognition technology being used in major metropolitan cities, including United States cities, uh, also places like London and certainly China and Hong Kong to capture faces of people who are possibly dissidents or people who are committing crimes. The problem with that is that the facial recognition technology did not recognize black faces or oftentimes misrecognize black faces. So when this was presented to Congress, it actually mismatched people like John Lewis with criminals and mismatched and and, uh, charged this as a possible suspect. I think in February 2020, I I think that facial recognition technology for these kinds of surveillance modes was banned from the United States um, because of the way that they collect data and because of the kind of equity issues involved in that as well. I wanted to kind of shift and ask you, you know, what as somebody who knows about privacy uh, and is familiar with the practices of data collection and possibly manipulation as well, um, what do you do to protect yourself from data collection or surveillance or spying or manipulation, if anything? I live on a ranch and I stay here. <laughs> <laughs> I never leave the ranch. <laughs> to me, it's very much an awareness thing. So. And, you know, a lot of times, I mean, maybe it's just, be, you know, because I, I recognize it. I know I can recognize, you know, cameras where they're, how they're, how they are installed, where they are. I'm very aware when I go anywhere, what's around me in terms of surveillance. And it is everywhere. I mean, you, 
and it's getting more and more. COVID has not helped that process. Track and trace has is actually increasing the number of cameras, not decreasing it. So your ability to anonymously go about a city is, I think, diminishing. And in the name of safety, in the name of security, in the name of health, in the name of science, in the name of everything but privacy, that's, that is going to continue to diminish. So, you know, I, I jokingly mentioned that, but I, I do avoid cities. I, I, I mean, not that I don't go to them. Of course, I'm um, in Silicon Valley all the time and in Texas and in New York, but um, I'm very aware of, of what's going on. And, you know, the other thing that I, it just, it just seems common sense to me. And I remember as a kid, my my parents would be so upset if you gave your phone number to somebody without their permission. Like I had a friend one time, I wanted him to call and I gave him my phone number and they're like, you don't give your phone number to anybody until you ask us. We want to know who has our phone number. I'm like, okay. You know, so it was very much ingrained in me back in the day, but be conscious of what you put on social media. So much of our privacy or your privacy is given up voluntarily. And I think it would be an interesting study, you know, and, you know, we always talk about privacy in terms of people taking our privacy or stealing our privacy, you know, doing something that we're not aware of. I would be willing, and it's complete conjecture at this point, but it would be an interesting study to see how much of it is voluntarily given up, how much is we consciously give away. And to me, I think that for me, that is what, what I do is in is just terms of awareness of where I am and what I'm doing and what's going to be around me. Now, I have an advantage, obviously, because I can recognize these things. I see them. And I think it's just a process of, of education and learning what people are actually doing. You mentioned COVID-19, and I wanted to ask you a question, particularly about this moment, which is hopefully the end of the pandemic. I don't know. Uh, I used to say we're at the beginning of the pandemic in March and the middle uh, of the pandemic in about April. And of course, that proved to be very wrong. April was very much at the beginning, but hopefully we're now at the end. I heard you in a 2017 talk at Oregon State University mention that there's a lot of remote work in the Internet of Things. Because we're in the middle of a pandemic where everything is remote, or at least most things that can be remote are remote, um, the idea that the Internet of Things would be responsible for creating a future of remote work seems a little a little quaint, but, but I'm still intrigued by the idea that there might be a connection between remote work and the Internet of Things. How do you see the transition of nearly all fields to remote work uh, affecting the Internet of Things? I mean, I haven't worked in an office in, in 20 years, and I can't even imagine going back. And I think I, when I gave that talk uh, five years ago, was, I, of course, I had, I had no idea that there was a coming p- pandemic or not even that there was... Um, that the idea that developers would need to be in an office. So I've always, I mean, with when you talk about IoT, the the nature of IoT in and of itself means there is nothing in one place. Your question at the beginning uh, when we talked about is what is IoT? It's it's the ability for things to talk, the ability for things to communicate. Those things by definition, are not going to be in the same place. I'm going to have a temperature sensor over here. I'm going to have a water meter over there. I'm going to have a cell phone over here. I'm going to have a camera over there. I'm going to have, you know, things that are different, are in different places. And they're going to communicate through places 
that cannot be stored in the server closet. There is not going to be a place where you can go and say, oh, well, I've got to log on to the server. No, it's everywhere and it's everything, you know, by definition. So even in our company, we don't, we do have an office down in, in Belmont in, in California, but 90% uh, of our workforce is, is, is spread across because our job is to actually connect things. And so the, actually the more disconnected we are, the easier it is to keep, you know, to test and make sure that the connections uh, are working. But what is IOT going to do for the workplace in, for the new workplace of uh, post-pandemic? And I think you're going to see a, a lot of cool things starting to happen around IoT. I don't think we'll probably call them IoT, but because people are at home more, you know, you're you're going to see people more maybe wanting to have their their smart home, getting connecting up their lights and keeping their environment more, having you know the ability for ordering and bringing things in and logistics of moving things around. The you know again going back to your connected washing machine, I think the ability to have that stuff moving up because people are home and they can receive things, that interconnectivity of our devices is going to be more because we're also not going to want to go to those places. You know, we talk about, an, the, you know, this becoming an appointment economy um, where there's, you're going to have it. We all, we're used to appointments going to appointments when we go to the doctor or, uh, appointments, you know, when we go to the dentist, but you know, imagine a world where there's an appointment to go to the grocery store and there's an appointment to go to a, not just a reservation. You have an appointment to go to dinner. You have an appointment to go to the bar. You have an appointment. Everything has to be coordinated to so that we maintain appropriate amounts of crowds and, you know, you're moving out and to get the efficiency of us. So IoT is going to play a huge part in that. Um, one of our applications is we have a, a people counter that measures the capacity of the number of people in a grocery store so that you know that the capacity can't go out. Even had a request for an application from a, uh, a, uh, a I think it was a, a restaurant. They want to know when you can go to the bathroom, <laughs> when you can use the restroom. Um, because in, it, no, it wasn't a restaurant. It was a uh, office building because there was a issue where, you know, people would, you know, typically you, you have to use the restroom, you go to use the restroom. But if there's, you know, two or three people in there, you can't use the restroom. So they wanted to have an appointment system by which you could go use the restroom. You know, that appointment economy is <laughs> using an appointment to go to the restroom may be taking it to extreme, but I think that that is going to happen. And IOT or these connected, the ability to connect and coordinate those logistics, I think is only going to take more prevalence in the future. I'm really glad you brought this these examples up. One of the things that I talk about in my approach to ethical technology is the importance of interdisciplinary work. COVID-19 and the kind of social reconfigurations that are going to have to happen as a result of living in a COVID and post-COVID-19 era are certainly technological problems. They're problems about how to engineer a vaccine, how to reconfigure the workplace technically, but they're also psychological problems. They're sociological problems. They're humanistic problems. They're also, they're large questions that are going to require a diversity of intellectual backgrounds and approaches to attempt to solve them. I wanted to ask this kind of uh, interdisciplinary question in the context of the way that you kind of live and straddle the technological world with your work as a rancher. You started your own company, Barley Beef, and your family farm near Bend, Oregon, which is where you currently 
currently are. And just a heads up, I'm not only an ethical technologist, but also an ethical vegetarian. So I might have strong feelings about this, but I think it's important to talk to people who think or live or believe differently from us. So I wanted to ask Silicon Valley on the one hand, Ranch and Bend on the other hand, in Oregon seem, seem to have, at least on the surface, not as much in common. And I was wondering how you see these two forms of work coinciding with one another? Are they symbiotic in some way? How has your work in Bend, Oregon on the ranch taught you about Silicon Valley or about tech and vice versa? And maybe we can even widen out the scope. Are there some of the same ethical principles in your approach at work in these two arenas? I'm sure there's not too many CTO ranchers that <laughs> combinations that you interview on a regular basis, but I think maybe there should be, right? Being able to sit in my office and, and write some code and then quite literally walk out and, you know, shovel some shit. Figure I guess I could say that because we talked about the internet of shit. But I think each one gives the other perspective. And I'm sure at, at, you know, at Cal Poly with your two esteemed disciplines, I mean, you have big technology school, big agricultural school. I'm surprised you don't have all these, you know, a bunch of farmers and coders down in San Luis Obispo already, right? But ranching gives me a sense of, it gives me some more common sense approach to my technology. Ranchers and farmers are very pragmatic people, you know, like your, your rental car example. Yeah, it's cool to start your car with your phone, but that's not really a problem that needed solving, right? Uh, ranchers and, and farmers are very pragmatic and yet have a very creative approach. You know, there's the saying that necessity is the mother invention. Farmers and ranchers invent and create technology because they need it to solve a problem. It makes things more efficient. It allows them to not get hurt. <laughs> it allows them to do less work and not their back and not hurt their back. But I think fall too often what happens in technology is we reverse that. And we think invention is the mother of necessity. Like in the tech world, we create things because, oh, we can. Like, oh, this, look, I can have a thing that unlocks my car. And then we try to, you know, we try and create the need in the world that says, oh, you must, you must have this. And we do all those marketing kind of things to create the need and we invert the thing. Well, you know, as a rancher, I very much, and as a farmer, and I've, you know, my ranch has been the family for 101 years. I'm, I'm the third generation to have lived here. And so you, you grow up very practical uh, in your approach, very conservative in terms of your ability to, you don't, you don't waste energy. You don't waste you don't waste the land. You don't waste anything. Barley beef, actually, in, in my little town, uh, I live in, in Bend, Oregon. And in Bend, Oregon, we have a bunch of microbrewers, uh, Deschutes Brewing Company, Boneyard Brewing, Bend Brewing Company, lots of brewing. So we pick up the spent grains from the brewers and we feed that to the cows. So I always say, if you, if you want to support your local farmer, drink more beer. Maybe we can't say that on the podcast either. I'm not sure. So we do, we do take, you know, all that all the, the grains and stuff that's used in the beer making process, it comes back, feeds the cows, and then we actually sell the meat back to the pubs. And so, well, if you came in and had a burger and a beer, you would not be eating a burger raised on the beer you were drinking, but most people would. <laughs> and how do those, how do those two interrelate? The technology also drives the agriculture. Agriculture is by, by and far the number one um, use case for IoT. 
you know, uh, soil sensors, fertigation, plant sensors, robots, the robotic picking, all those types of things. John Deere is like an early adopter of all technology coming in. I mean, this, those John Deere tractors these days are, you know, you talk about your connected thing. It is completely connected. So yeah, but how does the technology help on the other side? Because I'm constantly finding the need. So, you know, and, and to your point, and I always enjoy talking to the vegetarians because they always in curious as to what their perception is of me. Cause usually there's, there's one or two things like I need to die <laughs> or I'm just like, I don't quite understand what you do. But one of the things that we use the technology for is in our corral systems. I'm actually developing a, a connected corral system so that, you know, the cow that typically goes to market right now is the slowest cow, right? The easiest one to catch is the one that goes to market, but that's not the one that should go to market. And usually what happens now, you have handlers that are having to be in pens with corral and with cattle and whatnot and move them around. Well, that causes stress on the cow. It causes stress on the on the handler, you know, it causes so we're creating a series of corrals that are connected. So the cows have RFID tags. They walk through and when they meander in from the pasture and they decide they want to come get a drink, we can automatically move gates open and close gates based on what cow passes through it so that we can move them, you know, separate them out. Doing things like that, fertigation technology has been uh, tremendous in terms of plant growth and, you know, being able to put fertilizer in your irrigation system. Being, we live in a high desert, water conservation, water efficiencies, being able to put more water into the rivers and lakes and streams and get your farms using more has been IoT and technology is the thing that is keeping those rivers and streams going when the entire Western United States is in a drought. So yeah, they do work hand in hand, you know, quite well. And I think it also gives you this sense of perspective. I think if, you know, I've seen so many people who were ranchers their entire lives and they have no idea about how technology works or even how people who are using their product think and perceive them and vice versa. Right? I see so many people who underst don't understand how ranchers and how, you know, what the farmer works. And I always kid people, I, you know, I have a foot in each world. You know, when I'm in Bend, I only know farmers. I only know ranchers. And if I told, you know, I talk about them that I do IoT, they look at me like, what the hell is IoT and what are you talking about? When I'm in Silicon Valley, I only know technicians. And I tell them I'm a rancher, they go, wait, hamburger comes from an animal? Right. <laughs> it's I think the two complement each other and I think they have a balance. It gives me a, a real balance and a perspective on each one of them. So I feel really fortunate to be able to do both. I wanted to kind of circle back to something that we were talking about before we started recording. Uh, you have a son who is a recent computer science Cal Poly graduate. And a lot of our podcast focuses on that next generation of technologists, the impact that um, they're going to make with their careers once they complete their degree. The principle behind this initiative and the ethical technology initiative at Cal Poly and this podcast broadly is to really prompt thinking by that next generation about how they're going to measure their careers through the ethical impact that they have and how they can enlist the principles and some of the tenets of this kind of learning to change the future of technological culture and technological products. What do you think the current technology-centered undergraduate students are currently missing maybe about the ethics of technology? What would you want them to think, know, understand, be aware of, come out of their undergraduate degree with as they start their careers? So we have 
three or four employees that came from Cal Poly. We actually started an internship program down there when he was down there. And I mean, the caliber of, of students that have come out of there have been just amazing. But to your question, the, the thing, and, and I wouldn't say, you know, to say our group and you guys actually do a pretty good job of this, but there is a tendency, I think, and, and a large degree in other countries that I see this too focus entirely on, you know, the science, technology, engineering, and math. The thing that I would say that we can't forget and that technology and engineers in general need a little bit more of is philosophy and religion and literature and art. <laughs> Those, and, and to the engineering mind, it's a very uncomfortable thing. If you have someone who, the reason they go into engineering is because that's how they think. And they they think in logical, this comes after this. And there is, I always call it the the crack cocaine of of programming is when you see your program run and it's it's working, that's what they got. Engineers, when they see what they've built, it's there. There is an answer to a problem. They feel good when you have a problem and they have provided an answer. But it's those other disciplines that help us to kind of open up and start to think outside the box. In my career, I was actually went to a, a liberal arts college and, and had a communications degree. I didn't learn to program till later in my life. And when, I got, when I got my master's, I got it in CS. But I always appreciated that ability to kind of, you know, think outside the box, to think something to take the time to go, okay, I have a problem and I actually see what the solution is, but let's stop for a minute. Let's pretend like I don't know the solution and what are the other possibilities? Be open enough to go, all right, because there's no one solution to any problem. And I think that ability to pause, you know, and I always, when I, I talk to our guys, I say, okay, we got a problem. We want to do this. And everybody comes up. I think we should do it like this. I think we should do it like, and then I, okay, now let's come back tomorrow. And I want you to think about it. I want you to pause for a moment because this, this is not a fire sale. And let's come up with another idea. And it's those other disciplines of, you know, I remember taking an art class as an enrichment class and, you know, the professor is saying, all right, you got to paint this upside down. Like, what the hell? I'm an engineer. I got an engineering mind. You want me to paste something upside down? You want to look at it differently? You know, literature and philosophy classes where you, you know, you can debate something that may or may not have one answer. It may have multiple answers. And that's actually okay. You know, you could, you could, you can pick one and you're not wrong. <laughs> you can actually, we can all, you can, you can have one way and I can have another and we can both be right. You can be a vegetarian. I cannot be a vegetarian and we can both be right. Right. It's that ability to do that. And I think in technology, that's what we need. You know, we can't just rush in. I think all fall too often. What you get is you get, you know, invention is the mother of necessity because we think, oh, well, I can do this. I know how to do that. And so I go do that and we figure out the need later. I think we need to you know, stop a little bit, you know, broaden the minds and, and, and think outside the box a little bit. Thank you very much, Rob.